Let's be reminded that we have, as we started and discussed last week with the temple, we've got, we have a lot of tabernacle and, well, tabernacle ahead of us. The temple isn't, isn't yet, but last week I told you that. And, and our Torah portions, really, for the next couple of weeks, the, this one, the past one, the next couple, are all about the tabernacle. So I want to invite you, I want to make sure that you're reading and you're studying and you're engaging with that, you're reading the commentary because in a, just a straightforward read, you miss a lot if you're, not, if you're not getting some other perspective, particularly ancient Jewish perspective, because some of the, some of the more recent commentary is wrong. Okay, so I want to invite you to engage there and enjoy that. Next week, we have the shiny bovine making his appearance, the people that, the, the cow that everyone loves so much, they worshiped it instead of God. So maybe we'll come back to the Torah next week to talk about that. But this week, we have something to prepare for. We have a party coming up. We have a celebration that we have to learn about and and. and Read the Megillah and read the story of Mordecai, of Esther, and Haman. Purim is another story of deliverance, of God showing up and, and, and being there for the Jewish people. But there is a very strange component of the book that we read to commemorate Purim. Okay? Technically, the scroll that we read, which is what? What book do we read? What scroll? Esther. Right. Perfect. So that's easy enough. What is strange about Esther? What was it? There is no God, which is where I derive the very strange title of this sermon for a religious atmosphere. <laughs> There is no explicit mention of God in the book of Esther. Now, there are plenty of commentaries and ideas and midrashim and finding the acrostic of God's holy name in different places in the book of Esther and all types of creative suggestions about how it's, it's really in there. But by a plain reading, the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Now, that actually depends, though, on which version you're reading. And I'll come back to that in a second. But that has been a problem for a lot of people through the ages, particularly those who completed the books of the Bible, who canonized, who decided what books went in to your holy canon, right? There's a lot you don't know about the canon and how controversial and what an unbelievable thing it was to put those books together and how some books that aren't there now originally were and we could do a whole series on the canon. But Esther was particularly difficult, whether Jewish or Gentile, in terms of the canonization. It has a very strange position in, in both canons. In the, it is the only book of the Tanakh that was not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay, which which there's a lot of reasons why that. It was a, it was a bunch of ascetic, ascetic men set apart, and so there are a number of reasons why. And just because it wasn't found doesn't mean it was never there, but there is this thing that says it was not found in any of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the rest of them were. It was never quoted in the New Testament. 
That's not the only Old Testament book not quoted in the New Testament. Song of Songs is not. Ezra is not. But Ezra and Nehemiah were kind of like one book, so Nehemiah is. But Esther, not in there. It is also acknowledged within Jewish tradition as being the last book to have been added to the canon. On the Christian side of things, Esther's canonicity has been challenged throughout history on the very obvious ground that it's not God-oriented. It's not, there, there isn't any God. And by others, it's on the grounds, you'll be surprised by this, that it's too Jewish. Martin Luther as, a, Martin Luther as an example, he described himself as an enemy of the book of Esther because... The Jews esteemed the book too highly and that it contained heathen unnaturalities. Not sure what those are, but that was what he said. And there is no God. There's no explicit reference to worship, to sacrifice, to prayer. There is prayer. No, there's fasting. There's sackcloth. There's mourning. But there's no prayer. And that turns out to be a problem for some translators of the book who set about correcting that. Question for you, has anyone ever read the Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox version of the book of Esther? If you have, you would be surprised by some of the things you see. Because the book of Esther is found in two different versions in our Bibles. Jewish and Protestant Bibles follow the Hebrew versions. That is the Masoretic text, the accepted Hebrew text of the Bible. Catholic and Orthodox Bibles follow the Greek version that has a very famous name, the Septuagint. So this Greek version of the book of Esther has a hundred, little over a hundred additional verses. There are actually two Greek versions of Esther. There's Esther Aleph, Esther Beta. They're found. These are extant scrolls or extant. So there are three versions of the book of Esther. The Hebrew version does not mention God at all, not even once, while the Septuagint version uses God or Lord about 50 times usually in additional verses that are not in our version. Okay? But also, including a handful of places where the Hebrew text does not parallel the Septuagint. In other words, it's the exact same text, but it doesn't show up in Hebrew. There is nothing religious about the Hebrew version. However, the Septuagint includes prayers by Esther and Mordecai, refers to the laws of Moses, including kashrut and circumcision, speaks of Israel as God's inheritance. This is the Septuagint version with its hundred extra verses and sections. It also says that Israel went into exile because of disobedience to God's laws. It refers to the temple in Jerusalem as God's house. Now, the Hebrew version does talk about how Esther became the queen and married this Persian guy, but what it doesn't say that the Septuagint does is that she abhorred the idea of being in a Gentile's bed. Now, scholars are mostly agreed when it looks at these versions of Esther that those additions that I'm talking to you about were added after 
the shorter Hebrew version that we have courtesy of the Masoretes. That is, that, that the original version is the older one. The one that is, let's use this, this term carefully, godless. The godless version of Esther with no mention of his name. So what we have here are later translators or editors adding religious elements. As David Kleins, the author of the Esther scroll, the story of the story writes, he, he's saying that the Septuagint added the religious dimension in order to assimilate the book of Esther to a scriptural norm. That is, to make the book of Esther sound more like Ezra and Nehemiah and other books that have this, re where God's presence is felt in the events and where the characters are religious and they're engaging in religious activities. These are the additions. Why, you ask, would they do that? Well, if we consider the book of Esther, it's a bit racy, isn't it? It's very soap opera-esque. We've got this Jewish girl who ultimately, through her beauty, gets into the king's court. She marries a Gentile, which, which undoubtedly meant intercourse, all to manipulate him into acting for the good of her people. And the book never mentions God or sanctity or Torah or holiness or anything one time. So, for example, some of the additional texts, circumcision, which is about as Jewish as it gets, shows up in the Septuagint version. No mention in the, in the Hebrew or the Masoretic text. In the Septuagint, at the end of chapter 8, we read, and many of the Gentiles were circumcised and became Jews. They also clean up Esther quite a bit. Here's what the Septuagint says about Esther. She's in one of the additional sections, which is there are four additional sections. But Esther is quoted here as saying, I abhor the bed of the uncircumcised and of any alien. And that she goes on to say, your servant has not eaten at Haman's table. And I have not honored the king's feast or drunk the wine of libation. So in other words, Esther emerges from these additions as this good Jewish girl who eats kosher and doesn't sleep with Gentiles. Now, that seems fine. It seems fine to me to, get, to, to put God front and center back into the story, to get the book firmly planted on its, on its Jewish soil. That seems okay. But that's not the story we read. That's not what we have in our Bibles. Now, why? Why not let that one stick? The, the cleaned up version. The God-included version of Esther. The one with God all over it. Well, as you might guess, I have a hypothesis and a suggestion that through the work of the Spirit and this process of getting these books to us, that God actually knew what he was doing. Could you believe that? It is possible. I'm, I'm, I'm like confident about it. That when he allowed this version, the one in which he is conspicuously absent, that he allowed this to be the book that we read year after year, that he had something in mind and a purpose behind it. Hence the title of our sermon, There Is No God. It's really just to make people click on the link. <laughs> there are two stories. 
There is the God story and there is the human story. And the God story, as usual, we, 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 we talk about this every year. It's where we focus our attention. We find ways to make certain that God is seen. In other words, to, to elevate the God in the book. We want to we make sure, even if we're reading the one that doesn't say God, we want to look and dig and, and set aside all these little treasures we find of where God's working and doing something. So we Godize the book. That's what we do every year. That's part of Purim. And it is, it is definitely a, a Jewish story of God moving behind the scenes. And God chose the Jewish people. He made a covenant. He made a promise. He'll never fail in those. And so we celebrate these types of events. Coming soon, Purim, deliverance of the Jewish people. Coming soon, Passover, the deliverance of the Jewish people. Down the road, Hanukkah, the deliverance of the Jewish people. We, we always remember these and what God's doing. But the no-God version of Esther allows us access to another really, really, really important practical point for your life as a human being. And this is the human story. Undeniably, God is at work in ways we'll We'll never really know. That's for certain. Behind the scenes, though, when we read this no God version, and I'm calling it that for distinction, there's really no such thing as no God. God is in everything. God is in this lectern. It's made out of atoms and energy. Where do you think that came from? But, but when I read... Our version of Esther, if we're honest, you could certainly strike a lot of this up to coincidence. You really could. I mean, think about this. I'm not going to read the text because we're going to read the whole Megillah on Monday night, so you'll hear it read out. But Vashti, Vashti gets tired of being treated like a dog, like chattel. She doesn't like her husband, so she gets mad, makes him mad. He's not very smart. So he always has to ask everyone for help about what to do. So turns out he asked these people and they say, well, you should have a beauty contest. And it turns out that there's a Jewish girl who lives there and she's real pretty and real humble and everything. And so she wins. She wins the contest. And it also just so happens that her uncle is sitting by a particular gate one day when two big dumb oafs are talking about their plan to kill the king, and he overhears that, and he, write, he goes and reports that, and it stops the king from being killed. But the only place it's ever actually reserved or notated is in this very big, boring book called The Annals or The Chronicles of the King, which no one reads unless they can't sleep. <laughs> Which just so happens the king has a bad case of insomnia one night and calls someone and says, how can I go to sleep? And he says, well, let me pull out this big, boring book and we'll read it. And so he reads it and he falls asleep, but not before he remembers in the reading of the Chronicles that this guy Mordecai saved his life and he forgot to say thank you. And he's not very smart, so he says, no, what should I do? So they say, well, let's parade him through the streets. And he makes this anti-Semite very angry who says, I'm going to kill y'all. Every one of you, I'm going to kill you. But it turns out, remember, Esther was very pretty, and she won this contest. And so she, because the king's not very smart, is able to set up a couple of parties and expose the whole thing, and Jews win. 
Let's eat. <laughs> now, in the plain reading or telling of that, all of this is happening independently of God. It's not mentioned one place. But something else is happening. And I'm going to borrow this concept from loosely. His version becomes my own version from Rabbi Norman Lamb of Blessed Memory. It is precisely because there is no God plainly visible that we are able to watch the human story develop so powerfully and practically for our lives. And this is the lesson that I am convinced that this godless version of Esther is supposed to teach us. You ready for it? Rabbi Lamb suggests that when God shows up in, on a mountaintop or in a lightning bolt or an earthquake or when God shows up in absolute power and awe, you have, there's nothing you can do except listen to God. It's easy to move on that. God gives you a direct order or inspires you through the Spirit as he did with the prophets. It's impossible not to. The revelation of God elevates one to this high level of spiritual ecstasy and you're like, yes, God, I'll do it. As long as a person does not have the option of saying no, their yes has no merit. Rabbi Lamb says, when God honors me with his direct revelation, I'm compelled to act. Well, what about when God's not showing up? What about when he's hidden? This story that we're reading, this Megillah, this story of Esther, does not depend on how Jewish Esther was or how religious Esther was, or whether she ever slept in a Hashverosh bed or ate a pig foot. That's not the point. But instead, how faithful she was. And how she would demonstrate that faith in the face of what could certainly be dismissed as coincidence, as good luck, as the way of the world. There was, without direct instruction from God, if anything, the story makes it clear there was no God in any obvious way. And I want to point you to a very familiar and interesting conversation from the book of Esther to make this point. In Esther 4, I'll just read it to you. Hatach went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the palace gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and all about the money that Haman had offered to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also, Mordecai giving to Chatak, gave him the written text of the law that had been proclaimed in Shushan for their destruction. He asked him, Mordecai, to Chatak, show this to Esther and inform her and charge her to go to the king and to appeal to him and to plead with him for her people. When Chatak came and delivered Mordecai's message to Esther, Esther told Chatak, take back this reply to Mordecai. And here's what Esther said. All the king's courtiers and the people of the king's province know that if any person, man or woman, enters the king's presence in the inner court without having been summoned, there's but one law for him, that he be put to death. Only if the king extends the golden scepter to him may he live. 
Now, I have not been summoned to visit the king for the last 30 days. In other words, Mordecai, what do you want me to do? If I go, I die. The king hasn't asked for me. Now, there are a number of opinions, of course, everywhere. Commentaries about, well, no, what Esther was actually doing was she was letting in code what her whole plan was. And so Mordecai... Well, okay, fine. But let's just read it for what it says. And if anything, what we can judge or guess here is a bit of uncertainty. Esther, in a place of uncertainty. Mordecai, this is how this works. This isn't how it's currently working. What do you want me to do? And then there's Mordecai's famous response. Her uncle responds. And, and realize that nowhere... Has Esther gotten a, a dream or a vision from God? He hasn't shown up in a cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night. There's no breastplate of decision that she can consult about what to do. All she has is these words from her uncle. He had this message delivered to her. Do not imagine that you of all the Jews will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter, while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, perhaps you're here for such a time as this. Everyone knows that line, right? For such a time as this, for such a time as this. I'll tell you what for such a time as this really means, most people aren't willing to do it. But I want you to listen to that. Esther, if you don't do this, however, do we have that text? We don't have that text, but it's okay. Again, he says, if you keep silent in this, don't imagine that you of all Jews will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter. Now just stop right there. What he's saying is, Esther, listen, not a big deal. If you don't do it, someone else will, and the Jews will be fine, but you're going to die. Now, how? Why? Why does that work? If all the Jews are going to be saved, whether Esther does something or not, and she's Jewish, shouldn't she be saved too? That doesn't actually line up. Esther, all the Jews will be saved except you and yours. So let me translate Mordecai's plea for you. I want to keep everybody awake. Listen, this is my own interpretation for the point of my teaching that I'm giving you today. What is Mordecai saying? Esther, I know God hasn't told you anything. As a matter of fact, God is somewhere, but in the events surrounding us, I don't really see him. He's concealed. But regardless, Esther, of how hidden God is right now, it's quite possible that you are where you are because he's asking you to do something huge. Something that will require courage in the face of of fear and danger. And I know he hasn't come to you in a cloud or a dream or a vision, but I think he's giving you an opportunity, Esther. And if you don't take it, 
the Jewish people are going to be fine. But your opportunity to be loved, remembered as the heroine who acted for her people, that opportunity will die by your inaction. Your legacy and the honor you might bring to your family through your show of trust and faith will not be realized. So my dear niece, take the step, Esther, or forfeit the miracle. To me, there is no clearer God conversation without mentioning God than what happens right here. Esther sent this answer back to Mordecai. Go. Assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan and fast in my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will observe the same fast. Then I shall go to the king, though it is contrary to the law, and if I am to perish, I shall perish. In other words, Mordecai, I hear you, unk. I'm going to go to the king. Regardless of what I hear in my days of fasting, I will trust and go. And so it's interesting to note that maybe this is the message. If God showed up and spoke to her and told her exactly what to do, it changes the whole story. It's not difficult. It's not a challenge when God shows up and tells you exactly what to do. If it reduces Esther's Faith and her bravery, what challenge is there for her? Where is the faith in that? The action, the overcoming fear, the, the step of courage. God wasn't going to let his people perish at the hands of a crazy anti-Semite, then or now. Still not. No matter how much we hear about anti-Semitism and all that, he's never going to let it happen. And I don't want to remove God any further from the book of Esther, but, but, but that's a powerful message that we learn from Esther. And you hear me say this a lot, but the great moments of life are often found on the other side of extremely hard decisions and intense difficulties that you face. The great moments of making a decision and taking action. And sometimes I'm going to let you know, you ready? You just got to trust that God is somewhere. And that he is with you because we know his nature and his faithfulness toward us. Of allowing our faith to move us toward courageous acts. I told you once before, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being afraid and being willing to step into it anyway. When God tells you, go for it, I'm with you, don't worry about it. Does that take courage? Of course not. Rabbi Lamb says, well then, when can we tell what a man is really like? When may he be held morally accountable for his acts and considered either guilty or praiseworthy? When he is free to decide. It is in the Purims of life when we have no clear proof that God is with us or against us that there is special virtue in action. And back to my introduction to conclude us.
We don't need Esther to be super religious or super observant or studying Torah every morning or having the strictest kosher diet on earth. We don't need that for this to be what it is. And I am, I am quite comfortable that God is willing to take the back seat in the story of Esther so that we see this. There's a good reason he's hidden in the book. If we search it out, yeah, it's about God. But it's about you. That's what the Bible's about. It's about you. You, narcissistic, crazy man. The Bible is about you and your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. That's what the Bible's about. So it's not surprising at all that God conceals himself, that we see this heroine doing these incredibly brave and amazing things in spite of fear and without a direct red line to God. Rabbi Lamb asked, what can we tell? When can we tell what a man is really like? Well, guess what? The book's not called Mordecai. Let's give credit where credit is due. Esther is our heroine. Mordecai may have had some spiritual insight, but he didn't have to move in, this, in any uncertainty. He got to tell Esther what to do. And by the way, what kind of solid encouragement is that? Hey, Esther, listen, all this bad stuff's going to happen, and maybe, perhaps, who knows, maybe you should do something about it. That's not very compelling. If your mentor is telling you that, she did it. Esther's the heroine. And I think God is, as I said, all good with bringing Esther to the forefront to make sure that we see that we need to be more Esterian to make up a word. More like her, because even in God's concealment, she chose to move. When then can we tell what a woman is really like? When may she be held morally accountable for her acts and considered either guilty or praiseworthy? When she is free to decide, and indeed she did decide, and she did not perish, and yes, she saved the Jewish people, but Esther lives on in her legacy, in the pages of her Bible, in our Bible, in the letters we have of the scroll and all its controversy and soap opera-esque comedic dramatic scenes, we have Esther. And hopefully we have her in our daily thoughts of tackling life, because let's face it, there are so many times when we long for a voice of God to tell us exactly what to do. Who in here has God on speed dial? Well, I have a prayer closet. Fine. Who in here has God on speed dial? Who, when you're facing the difficulty, gets to call God and say, listen, I got these two options. What do you want me to do? Sometimes you got to go in faith. And sometimes the test is whether or not we'll take that step and be remembered for it. As we sung today, Via Fido even in a concealment within a concealment, the Lord, may he be blessed, is certainly there. 
and behind the difficult things that stand before you, Esther and Dorothy and Melissa and Amber and Jared and Lance and Leslie and David, Z, Ross and Andy. I stand. That's what God says. I stand. That's the lesson of Esther. That's the lesson of the concealed God in the book of Esther that came down to us. Amen? Amen. So I will tell you with that, we're going to have a wonderful celebration coming up soon. Hag Purim Sameach. Shabbat Shalom, let's stand up. <laughs>